From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. There is so many alternatives, no matter what category you're in, no matter what you think you do that's unique and differentiable, there's just alternatives out there. And frankly, you know, selling is, there's a big part of it, which is how you manage the sales cycle, how you manage uh, the the prospect and, and the individuals involved in the deal. But there's also just knowing your stuff and knowing your differentiation against your competitors. Hi everyone, it's Justin Schreiber, and I'm really excited to introduce today's guest. But before I do, a quick question. What happens when you take an adrenaline junkie and add a healthy dose of contrarianism and a dash of dogged tenacity? Well, you get a guy who's willing to go toe-to-toe with Steve Jobs and win. That's our guest, Rick Jackson, CMO of Click. Over the course of his career, Rick's had the opportunity to work at great companies like HP and Next Computers, and he's held down the CMO spot at five different companies, including VMware, Rackspace, and Borland. Ironically, Rick didn't start his career in marketing, but his natural gift for simplifying a storyline and connecting it to customers' pain is his superpower. It's a superpower that Steve Jobs recognized and helped Rick cultivate. On today's show, Rick talks about finding the courage to go against the grain and the formula he uses to transform marketing organizations into major growth engines. Let's jump into the conversation. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Justin. Glad to be here. Well, Rick, I think this is going to be a lot of fun, especially given the fact that you are a self-described adrenaline junkie. I find that the adrenaline junkies always tell the best stories. So strap yourselves in and get ready for a wild ride. Why exactly Why exactly do you call yourself an adrenaline junkie? I'd love some examples or some evidence that this, in fact, was the case going back to your childhood. Yeah, you bet. I like to say that I have a need for speed. Um, still to this day, love fast cars, love riding motorcycles. Uh, but, you know, as you said, even as a kid, I was I was the kid that was always looking for what's the steepest hill I can find to ride my bike or my skateboard down. And I remember this one time being on this, this big hill and I was with my friends and I was saying, all right, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta ride down this, you know, and I'm talking straight down and everybody said, you're crazy. You'll never make it. Um, so I made a bet said, yeah, I, I bet you, you know, it's a long time ago. I said, I bet you a buck I can make it down. I got about halfway down before tumbling and rolling and losing half the skin on my arms and all. But uh, I've just, I've just always liked to go fast. That's just kind of my thing, whether it's, you know, skiing or snowboarding or racing around on, on the racetrack and cars, you know, I just, I love speed. You know, um, there's a great documentary on Netflix. It's called The Stuntman. And it's about this guy, Eddie Braun, who was a stuntman to the stars. In fact, he, he was on The Fall Guy, so uh, did a lot of the stunts for Lee Majors. And he's kind of a legend. But growing up, his idol was Evil Knievel, which I think is probably about 
you know, you, you, yeah. you were right there when that was happening. And I didn't realize this, but Evil Knievel attempted to launch himself over the Grand Canyon in a rocket ship. And actually, the reason that he did not make it is because the rocket itself didn't fail, but the chute deployed early and created too much drag. So this guy, Eddie Braun, wanted to um, relive and try to try to actually successfully perform the stunt. And it's a great documentary if you're into that kind of thing. Ultimately, I won't give away the ending, but he attempts the, the major feat. But up until then, they talk about all the crazy exploits he's done. And what's interesting, and I'm interested in if this is the case with you, just from a, a, an early age, he had a high threshold for risk, high risk tolerance. For him, it was more about seeking the thrill than it was worrying about the consequences of things going wrong. I, I think that's kind of the definition of an adrenaline junkie is the high, you know, that 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 feeling you get is just it's worthwhile, even though, you know, half the things you're doing are probably crazy. Um, I, I remember one time racing a friend. This is way back when I was living in Southern California and I was on a highway racing a friend on our motorcycles and looking down at my speedometer and we were pulling 160, you know, while weaving between cars on this freeway. And that was kind of a moment where I thought, yeah, maybe that's enough. And, and, and I finally backed off, but you just, that feeling of just that rush of, you know, in the moment, it's, you know, it makes you do sometimes some crazy things. So does that, tolerance for risk and the drive for adrenaline translate into your business career? Did you find that you were willing to take more risks than perhaps some of your colleagues were? Uh, absolutely. Um, first off, I, I love a challenge. I always have. You know, that That's what makes life interesting and overcoming challenges is what makes life great. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been one that takes risks, whether it's, you know, going with a startup company and, and potentially some new interesting technology. Uh, I tend to go with companies that are taking on big, massive juggernauts, um, which is always a risk. Uh, and I've, I've also always had a reputation for, you know, I'm the guy, especially at the executive table that will speak up. And I've always said that the moment I fear losing my job, I become incredibly less valuable. Um, and so just kind of that whole mindset of, of taking risk and being comfortable with it, I think is, it's what pushes the boundaries further forward so that you can achieve something bigger and better. You know, a big part of this show is hopefully helping people to realize that there are just inherent qualities that all of us have. And to the extent that we can get in tune with those and really channel those from a business perspective. They help to put us in a place where we can do so much more. Not everyone is like you. Some people are not are, are very risk averse, and that's okay. You got lots of different profiles out there. I think the key is being true to yourself, knowing who you are, and kind of embracing that, and then finding the opportunities that those particular attributes open up. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, you know, I had an opportunity to work at Next Computer back in the day, which uh, many will recall was the the company in between Apple and Apple that Steve Jobs started that uh, eventually took over the world. But, um, you know, I, I was interviewing for a job to move from the field at Next into corporate. And probably the best advice I got um, 
guy by the name of David O'Grady, who was just incredible, ran our third party uh, software programs and all that. And he said, because I was coming into product marketing at corporate is what I was interviewing for. And product marketing is Steve's domain. Mm -hmm. And people have always said that's the toughest job you can have under Steve because he is the ultimate product marketer, which I would have to agree. But he said, if you're the type of person that you get your self-worth based on someone else's opinion, you're going to really struggle in this position because the thing with Steve is Steve is going to elevate you and praise you. And you're going to think, Oh my God, I'm so wonderful when you're not, it's just, you're on the right side of Steve that day. But then the next day he's the kind of leader that's going to just lambast you and, you know, put you down and, um, he's going to hit you hard and he's going to make you feel like you're just a complete loser, but you're not. So he said, you know, to survive with Steve, you have to be the type of person that it's, takes input, but you got to know, like, be confident in yourself and, and really get your self-worth from what you know you're doing, what you're contributing, et cetera. And I thought that was wonderful advice. Um, and it helped me because I remember the, one of the first meetings I had with Steve and we were, we had a topic, we were discussing something and I brought up, uh, something that I thought we should do. And, you know, his initial reaction was my quote, well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And he was known for making those blunt statements. And, you know, I, I, I remember that conversation and I just, I didn't cave. Um, so at first I, I, I made a bit of a joke about it and said, so you're saying you don't want me to pursue it? <laughs> and then he went off of me and then, and then I pushed back on him and uh, uh, explained to him why I felt like we should do it and just refused to, to stand down. And that's actually what helped create a strong relationship between Steve and I was that moment of him realizing that I'm not going to back down. I'm going to stand up and we're going to have this conversation. Yeah, that Rick, that is such good advice. And in fact, you shared that story with me earlier this week. I was having dinner last night with my nephew who just got into the Berkeley School of Music. So he's one week in and he was sharing with me that when you get into that school on the first week, you have to audition again, even though you're in the school and you are evaluated based on four different dimensions. And then you get a score between one and eight for each of those dimensions. So you literally walk out and you have a label on you. You're a one, one, three, five, or a two, five, one, seven. And he said, it's really hard because you have all of these students that are used to being the best. They've come from all different parts of the world and people have told them they're the best. They think they're the best. And all of a sudden you're handed this piece of paper with four numbers on it. And he said, for a lot of kids, that's just hard to handle. And so I shared that story with him and I said, you know, you're going to be labeled throughout your life by a lot of different people. And sometimes the labels are going to be good. And sometimes the labels are going to be bad. Uh, let me tell you what Rick Jackson told me. If you accept those labels, you're going to get crushed. And if you have something inherently that tells you who you are and why you're valuable, that is separated from those labels, you're going to make it in life. And uh, hopefully he, he took that story to heart, shares it with some other people. But I think there's a lesson in there for all of us. Yeah, yeah, that's a, absolutely true. I, I often say I'm my biggest self-critic. Um, and so 
I'll, I'll usually be harder on myself than others around me anyways. But by the same token, I'm not going to get rattled by someone else's opinion. Yeah. So um, I I definitely want to get back to this story about Steve. I think there's a little bit more background we need to build, though, just to help folks understand why you ultimately were able to have a phenomenally successful career next and and become one of the the go-to guys for Steve. Um, So I want to go back to your, uh, your early education again. Talking about brushes with the rich and the famous, this this might be one step removed. I understand that one of your teachers was the cousin. Was it the cousin to Cheryl Ladd? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, it was a <laughs> phenomenal <laughs> teacher. Phenomenal. For teacher those of I you have. that are not in the know and did not have the privilege of growing up in the '70s and early '80s, Cheryl Ladd was one of the angels on Charlie's Angels, and so you didn't know Cheryl, but you knew her cousin. Mrs. Ladd, tell us a little bit about that that relationship and dynamic that you guys established. Yes, yes. So the, it was a teacher I had in uh, high school. Uh, her name at the time was Linda Packer, but previously it was Linda Ladd, and she was phenomenal. She was a she was a teacher that really spoke to me in, in terms of she connected with me, and I've always credited her with. The, the teacher that inspired me to really fulfill my potential. Um, and it, it was after having her as a teacher that my, say, my academic career did a little bit better uh, and excelled after that. But, you know, she was hard, but listening and caring. And you, you felt the empathy, right? The caring part of it, not just the, yeah. you know, ah, you're a student, I'm a teacher, you know, there was real empathy there. And, um, we asked, we had great interactions. We were talking the other day, but um, one of the things was is all of her tests would always have extra credit. So it was, you know, you're hundred percent and then there would be two extra questions. So you could get 101 or 102% on your grade. And I was famous for getting one of the two questions, right? And so I, I have 101% on a test and I would, argue with her vehemently after class that I had the other question right. And that it was just kind of my perfectionist attitude of like, no, 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 no. My answer is right. Let me explain why. And she loved it. And we would go back and forth and I, I'd make my case, she'd make her case, I'd make my case. And, and it was just, it was exciting to to really engage with a teacher that way. And it really did change my whole outlook on school. And so I've always credited her with helping me kind of get on the right path academically. Yeah. I want to connect those two stories, that story with Mrs. Ladd, with the story you just shared about Steve. Because when I heard these two stories together, what I realized is that as you were in the ring duking it out with Mrs. Ladd, trying to get another point, trying to explain why what you said was right, what you were really doing was training to go toe-to-toe with perhaps one of the greatest technological geniuses that the world will ever know. That's where it started back in high school with Mrs. Ladd. Who would have thought? (laughs) But, you know, in in all seriousness, um, I think sometimes we kind of blow kids off, we blow teenagers off. What Mrs. Ladd was doing by engaging with you is she was, to some extent, kind um, kind of legitimizing who you were. Like if, if she didn't think it was worth the conversation, she would have blown you off. But the fact that she was arguing with you and taking in your points and responding, 
she was implicitly telling you, hey, it's worth having this conversation, Rick. You have something to say, and I want to I wanna get in the ring and, and battle it out. And I can't help but think that that helped to establish your self-confidence. And later in life, that might have been something that you drew upon when times got tough. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I th- there were actually times where I think I was wrong, but she gave me the point just to just to keep encouraging me to to lay out my arguments, make my case, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I think she kind of helped fine tune that skill set of, you know, the art of argument and persuasion and um, help me believe in myself. I, I would absolutely agree with that. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. All right, so you you uh, made your way into tech pretty early in your career, not initially in marketing. You kind of came through, uh, followed a circuitous path into marketing. Tell us how you got into tech in the first place, and, and maybe just describe for us what technology at that time looked like. Sure. Well, first is... You know, my my entire career was somewhat unplanned and accidental, which I'm sure many people's are. Um, it's it's funny how I, I, I got started in tech. Uh, self-proclaimed adrenaline junkie. So growing up, what did I want to do? I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I wanted to fly jets. I wanted to fly Mach 2. And I wanted to shoot at things. I heard that that telltale phrase, I, I feel the need for speed. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I entered college, didn't really have a plan, knew that I ultimately, you know, hey, I want to be a fighter pilot. So myself and probably a million other kids, you know, walked over to the uh, Air Force recruiting office and walked in and said, where do I sign up? I'd like to be a fighter pilot. And uh quickly got the entire lecture on what it takes to actually become fighter pilot in our armed forces. Um, And one of the things that I learned in that process, of course, was, well, you know, if you want to fly jets, you have to be an officer. To be an officer, you have to have a college degree. So that kind of put me back into college mode of, oh, okay, I guess I am doing this college thing. And the other piece of advice that he gave me was that a technical degree would be a better degree to have just in terms of foundation. When I first entered college my first year, not knowing what I wanted to do, I just kind of default checked that, yeah, I'll be a business major. So that conversation had me change it to computer science and, you know, dating myself here, but um, I had never seen a computer before entering college. There was no, there was no personal computers, right? So, um, so I switched over to computer science thinking, you know, well, I hear computer, 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 that's gotta be a good direction to go. Um, it's technical, it's a, you know, bachelor of science degree. So that's, that's the path I'll take. Long story short, my eyesight decided to leave me and I was no longer 2020. And that is one of the other requirements to, to be a pilot. So thank goodness I switched my career to computer science. I got a technical degree um, and it landed me in my my career, which is I, I started off in software engineering at a mainframe based um, 
CAD CAM company as a as a developer, programming mainframes now back in the day. Um, it was a little bit better than school because my first two years of college, we were literally programming on punch cards. Um, for those people who know programming, imagine taking a COBOL class and doing it on punch cards. Uh, but, uh, you know, started off in mainframe and then my, my big break in engineering and it actually led to changes in my career was, uh, that was when really the, the notion of engineering workstations first started developing. And so I was tasked at my company to lead the development effort to build one of the very first commercial Unix workstation applications um, using CAD CAM, taking our mainframe product, re-architecting, re-architecting it and porting it to a Unix workstation. I mean, I was working with Sun Computer when there was like 100 employees and Apollo Computer for those who remember them and HP when they were developing their first workstation and IBM, I had serial number six of the first uh, RS6000 in my cipher locked office. So leading edge on, on the whole Unix development front. And, and that's kind of what led me from engineering then into, uh, I finally decided that I wanted to go into field sales and, and technical pre-sales. And with my background in workstations, I was hired by HP. So I just kind of accidentally stumbled my way through this tech career and ended up in uh, at HP for a while, and from there I went to Next, and then just kept going. And and HP is one of those iconic companies. Really, the company that Silicon Valley was built on um, produced so many geniuses and inspired so many. And not only that, but the company itself, the way that it was run, has become a model for subsequent tech companies. Um, they had a very particular approach, I understand, to the way that they handled sales. Can you talk a little bit about what that looked like? Yeah, that, you know, that was back in the day where, where loyalty was everything. And HP had a great culture. That's what they were really renowned for in the tech industry was their culture. And they were very proud of it. And, and in fact, as a new employee, when you onboard, you go through an incredibly intense onboarding program before you're fielded into your position. For a sales rep, that is typically a 12-month process, so 10 to 12 months for a sales rep. That means you're going through intensive training, both uh, self-paced as well as classroom training, doing research on the company, presenting it back to management, doing live testing with management, et cetera. You're doing all of this to, to really get grounded in the company, the background, the culture, the product offerings, this how we sell, the sales methodology, um, you know, all of this before you actually take on your position you were hired for. So, you know, as a as a pre-sales um, technical um, person, I was able to accelerate that because I I was hired because of all my knowledge of their products and all that. So I I got to skip a lot of that. But you know, even myself, you know, the first. Probably the first three months on board was to get through the first level of testing was learning about the company and the culture. And they forced you as part of that process. They gave you a document. It was ridiculous amount of questions, like 50 questions. I had to seek out 50 people 
across the company to get answers to these questions, all about culture, background, history, et cetera, of HP. So you get to that first test, you go in front of a board of management and you have to nail any question they give you. And it just, it for me, it was like, wow, what a, an experience of really indoctrinating every employee in the values and the history and the culture of the company. We just don't do that anymore. Um, now we don't have, you know, turnover and, and the, the way people change jobs nowadays is completely different than back then. You know, back then you would be expected, you join a company like HP, they're going to be there 10 plus years. Um, but you don't find a lot of companies like that where people stay for that long. Um, but I, I think that there's, there's still something missing in the way most companies get built today versus what HP did back in the day. I think there's a, a happy medium in there somewhere. Yeah, that was definitely a model that was embraced by a lot of the companies back in the 80s. Um, you know, I remember my first job in tech at Siebel, and it was really modeled after the HPs and the IBMs and the Xeroxes. Um, I didn't go through a year of training, but I did go through a month of training where they literally put us in a hotel and we were in there nine hours a day just getting boatloads of information thrown at us. And then there was a test at the end. And people knew that you could lose your job if you did not deliver on that test. It wasn't one of these things where do your best and, you know, see, see how it works out. Like if you didn't if you didn't pass the test, you got fired. So there was a lot of lot of pressure analogous to anything that I'd, I'd faced previously in school. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it was very similar to HP. I think I think you had uh, you if you failed once, you had a second shot at it. But if you fail twice, you were out. So I, I think you make a good point, though, which is HP and these other companies could put that kind of time into training because they knew that typically an employee would be with them for 10 years. The, the shelf life of a rep now is 18 months to two years. Even at that, though, I mean, let, let's take two years. That's that's 24 months. 10 percent of uh, of a person's tenure, that'd be two and a half months, I think. Even that, you don't. You see very, very few companies that are investing that level of um, of effort behind enablement. And I think you're right. There's an opportunity to step that one up. I, honestly, I would welcome that program you described. Of you know, just give me everybody for a month. Let me lock them into a, a hotel offsite and spend nine hours a day and see what we can do. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. just you know, and especially in today's world uh, for high tech. There is so many alternatives, no matter what category you're in, no matter what you think you do that's unique and differentiable, there's just alternatives out there. And frankly, you know, selling is, there. there's a big part of it, which is how you manage the sales cycle, how you manage the, the, the prospect and the, and the individuals involved in the deal. But there's also just knowing your stuff and knowing your differentiation against your competitors and yeah. really being able to execute that in a sales cycle. I think that is invaluable. And, and it's one of the things that in every company I go to, I'm, I'm the biggest champion for enablement and yeah. technical enablement. Know your product, know the differences, outsell your competition. Yeah. So you were one of the exceptions then because you only stuck around at HP for uh, a little over a year, I think. Uh, I'm sure people thought you were crazy, but the, the tractor beam of Next 
pulled you in and before you knew it, you were over at Steve's company? Yes, I get very excited about interesting, new, innovative technology. Uh, way too excited about it. And the um, a lot of uh, my background, I had, I had worked with a lot of Apollo computers at the time and, and the Apollo team, sales team that I worked with ended up at Next. And they they called me and said, you've got to come join this company. This is like the hottest company. It's we're doing unbelievable things. The technology is awesome. I said, Geez, I've been at HP a year. Like, I can't just walk out. Um, and they did a smart thing. They gave me a, a next computer and said, take it home for the weekend and play with it. And I did. And as an ex developer, I fell in love with the development platform on the next computer. It was, it, it was completely revolutionary compared to anything in the market at that time. And I knew this was, this is the future. This is going to change how we think about application development, et cetera. So I, I gave him back the computer and said, sign me up. How do I, how do I join that company? And, it, and that's how it went. So a little bit of context here. Steve gets bounced from Apple. He goes and says, fine, I'm going to do my own thing. Starts next computer. Uh, you, you mentioned that, uh, the product they were producing was unparalleled anywhere. What were some of the innovations that Next introduced? Yeah, I mean, if you think about Next and, and just the history of events, you know, obviously the, the biggest success Steve had at Apple at that time was the Macintosh and the introduction of the Mac. And, you know, Next was called Next for a very specific reason, which is it, it was the next generation really of the Macintosh. So it was very much focused on that, that rich, visual, easy to use interface, you know, drag and drop. Everything was kind of like very Mac-like, but taken to a new level. The cool thing is that uh, the engineers at Next, who were some of the brightest in the industry, they built it on a much stronger foundation. So you know, a multitasking, multi-threaded uh, Unix operating system. Um, and it had so much more power and they did more focus on networking and then to accelerate developing of applications for the next, they created an object oriented development environment. Object oriented is nothing new now, but back then it was revolutionary that, that there were no development platforms out there that were really strong at, at object oriented development with a really nice graphical approach to doing development and construction of applications. So when I saw all of that put together, that's, I just got excited about, wow, what, what you can build on this machine is going to be so much better than what you can build on any other platform I've ever worked with. Any of the Unix platforms, you know, the, the Microsoft platform, um, was very early days of windows back then. So, much more powerful than that and much more powerful than the Mac. So the potential was there. And, and that's what I got so excited about and, and wanted to be a part of. So this is where the adrenaline junkie comes through. Literally, you could have written your ticket at HP. You could have cruised out the rest of your career and uh, no one would have second guessed you. In fact, people thought that's what you were supposed to do. And yet you stepped out of that and you stepped into next because... You know, the blood was pumping, the adrenaline was flowing, and you said, this is this is what I want to do. So you got there, and tell me a little bit about kind of how you 
um, earned your stripes? Yeah. So I actually started in the field at Next. Uh, um, and again, I started off as technical pre-sale, so a systems engineering type role. And the difference was that at the time, I think Next was still in the middle of an identity crisis trying to figure out how do we market ourselves? You know, it, it really was a Mac on steroids, if you will. But so they would talk about interpersonal computing and, you know, next generation desktop publishing and, you know, all kinds of things. But, but it, the, the mark wasn't really hit. And I was biased because my background, software engineering, the whole reason I joined the company was this was an incredible application development environment. And so uh, I came very early on into what was the Southwest region, so Southern California and part of the Southwest. And and the sales guy and I kind of teamed up. And what we did is we started positioning that this is the best platform for companies looking to develop custom applications. And what I found is going into customer accounts, and especially in talking with CIOs, every CIO has a make it or break it project. It's their, their, they put their name on it. It's a transformational project that's going to change the company. And to support that, they're going to build some big custom application that's going to be the foundation for that transformational project. And it literally will determine whether they're successful at that company or bounced out the door. So my sales pitch was super easy. I would sit in front of them, talk to them about that project, and then ask them, if you knew you could accelerate the delivery of that project and have it successfully rolled out and adopted by your users, would you be willing to pay $10,000 per seat to roll that out? Never once have I heard a CIO even balk at that answer. They always said, absolutely, if I knew those things. And that changed the sales cycle to, okay, now what I'm going to do is we're going to show you over the next couple of weeks how we can accelerate the, de- the development and deployment of that application in an environment that your users can participate in the process and that they'll love the end experience for adoption. And that, that just changed the sales cycle. And you know, needless to say, my uh, sales rep and I, we were killing it. We, we were bringing down all of these large multi-million dollar deals based on this one premise. And that $10,000 per seat, that just happened to be how much it cost to buy a next workstation to deploy the application you developed on their platform. So yeah, it comes with hardware for free. But really what you're buying is success. And next thing we knew it, you know, we were, we were averaging between 200 and 300% of quota almost every quarter using that focused sales methodology. Um, and then a couple years into that, a new head of marketing. So a new CMO came into next and he saw that we were just killing it and the rest of the, organization wasn't. So he flew down to LA where we were based and he met with me and he said, what's the secret here? So I walked him over to a closet, opened it up and there were shelves of printed collateral. Back then we printed collateral 
and all still shrink wrap. I said, see all that? That's what corporate produces. We don't use that. Shut the door, walked over to our literature rack, said, see all this? We produced 100% of this here in the field. Um, And it's all based on one thing, how to develop mission-critical custom apps. And the light bulb went off. And he, uh, he said, I need you to come up to corporate and help train the rest of the company. And so I went up, did a few interviews. And then two weeks later, I was relocated to the Bay Area and started my first marketing job as the head of product marketing and product management for really the development platform, which oddly enough, I, the biggest strength of Next, no one had ever been a product marketing or manager for it. It was just, oh, that the engineers did that to make it easier to develop for. So it was like this, this diamond in the rough that no one had picked up and polished off. So to be honest, I had a really easy job, which was let's pick this thing up, polish it up, put it on the price list as now it's actually a for sale product. It was the most profitable product we ever launched because on day one, everybody paid for it and uh, went from there. That's Rick Jackson, CMO of Click. When we come back, Rick talks about why he pushed forward with a game-changing concept at Next Computers, even as Steve was berating him for even bringing the idea up. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. My guest today is Rick Jackson, CMO of Click. When we left off, Rick was about to share how his breakthrough go-to-market ideas at Next Computers at first won him Steve Jobs' admiration and then his ridicule. Let's get back to the discussion. So you basically at that moment were moved from outer Siberia into the uh, the mothership, and now you're in the close orbit of Steve Jobs. Eventually, he became your boss. How did that whole thing happen? Yeah, as, as some would say, I was I was getting pulled closer to the reality distortion field that uh, <laughs> he was well known for. You know, it, honestly, it, it's just um, good timing, good luck. Uh, because I was able to successfully launch that new development platform, et cetera, uh, and then working with engineering, working with sales, I had a great relationship with the field. Um, so really got the field to start adopting things, et cetera. And you know, for whatever reason, Steve saw something and six months into it, tapped me on the shoulder and said, why don't you just run all of product marketing? And uh, yeah, I said, sure, why not? Um, that's that adrenaline junkie. It's like, absolutely. I, you know, I'm brand new to this, but let's do it. Uh, so I took over and, uh, and then started reporting directly into them and things just kind of progressed from there. So you said that Steve was your best boss ever and your worst boss ever. Tell, tell us a little bit about that, that paradox. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the funny thing is, is at next, if you asked, the employees of Next, they would they would have said Steve is the best weapon we have and the worst one we have, um, and so that that's kind of a common thing with him. And, and I don't know, maybe it goes with the utter brilliance of a, an individual like Steve. But you know, on the positive side, 
I learned so much from him. I owe my my entire marketing career to Steve um, and for him taking a, a chance and a bet on me. But I really learned from him. I learned what marketing was really about and, and the foundation of taking technology and simplifying it and turning it into something that people can understand and visualize and understand the value of it and relating to people, relating that value uh, in a very almost evangelical way. So I, I learned a lot of my storytelling techniques from him, my presentation techniques from him, the way I think about marketing from him. So, you know, I've learned more from him as an individual than anybody in my entire career. The tough side is that um, he's a tough guy to work for. He's he's demanding. He's emotional. He uh, he likes to fly off the handle. Um, uh, I'll tell you a story is as funny as uh, I can't I, I can't remember exactly the magazine. It, it may have been something like Forbes or something, but there was a well known uh, monthly magazine that would come out every year with the seven worst bosses to work for. And while I was working for him, reporting to him, Steve showed up on the list. He wasn't number one. So he comes, I'm in my office working away and Steve comes sauntering into my office the way he kind of does and sits down and says, ah, I'm not going to believe it. And of course I knew the article came out. We were all talking about it. And he says, he shakes his head, goes, Rick, you're just not going to believe it. He goes, I'm on the list as one of the seven worst bosses to work for. And I looked at him and I said, and you're surprised? <laughs> that was kind of the relationship we had. So he's he's just a tough guy and he's gonna he's gonna get on you. And I there were times where he and I literally had yelling matches in his office. And I remember his assistant would get up and close the door and like we'd just be going at it. But it was it was always for, you know. It was never that we were combative in a bad way. It was just two people who believed in something going at it. And he liked to escalate. And one of the things I learned in my HP sales training is, is called PAR, you know, probe, align, respond. You know, so it's like, all right, you want to escalate? I'll escalate. Let's go. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about that idea, which out of the gate was labeled uh, ridiculously stupid by by Steve. What was that all about and why were you so why were you so wedded to that idea? Yeah. Well, if you if you follow Steve and all the great products that he's been behind and what Apple has done, you know, he really believes in kind of a complete closed system. So, he wants to control the hardware, the software, the user experience, everything about it. And to be honest, that's what makes those products so fantastic. Um, but my experience in working in the field, uh, especially with large customers, and as I broadened my role in product marketing, I started talking to the largest customers we had uh, really around the globe. And they were all really buying into Next as that development platform. And they loved the software that you could develop on and the object-oriented approach and all of that. But you know, a lot of like a lot of our customers were financial services companies. They had high-end transactional requirements. So they they really needed high-end servers to run part of the software that they were building. And they were fine with using, you know, the next workstations for the front end, for the user interface and all that. They loved it. 
Um, but they wanted more horsepower in the back end. And that's just not the business Next was in. So I put together a, a plan working with um, one of the heads of engineering, a gentleman by the name of Avi Tavanian, and said, let's build a plan to port the development environment and the runtime services onto Solaris or HPUX, so on a Sun you know, uh, server or an HP server or an IBM server, what have you. And then that connects easily to the next workstation as, as the front end. So kind of a typical client server development model. So he and I pulled together a plan for this. And that was the plan that when I presented to Steve, not knowing his full pension for no wanting to control the whole thing, he just said, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. And, and you know, after my little joke, the point was that, well, Steve, this is exactly where customers are asking for it. And by the way, if we do this, they'll roll out more applications, which means they'll have more users, which means they need more front ends, which means we'll sell more workstations, like next workstation. I think this is a good thing for the business. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. And I'm not the type to give up. So I'm, I'm fairly relentless. So every couple of weeks, I would bring it up. And by the way, I have sales reps all over the place pounding me, Rick, can we get this off the ground? Like my customers want this. They are excited about what you're working on. So I kept coming at it. And finally, I, I had um, one of, uh, we used to call them the walkabouts. Steve, when Steve says, let's go for a walk, you know, we had this beautiful campus right on a marina in Redwood City and Redwood Shores in uh, the Bay Area. That was code for Steve's going to give you a lecture. <laughs> so Steve comes to the mouse and says, Rick, let's go for a little walk. So we go out for the walk. We're walking out by the marina, turns back, points at this beautiful campus that we have and says, see all that? So yeah, he says, that's the company I built. That's the company I run. That's the company that I funded. I said, yeah, <laughs> I get that. He goes, therefore, that's the company where I make the decisions, what we do or don't do. So I'm thinking at this moment, like, all right, my idea is pretty much dead. However, Steve made a critical mistake, which is he gave me just a little bit of an opening. He said, if you want to do that project, you fund it. So not, I didn't say anything to him at the time, but I walked up from that meeting, went to the CFO's office and said, I need you to open up an account because I'm going to start putting money into it from several customers. And I went to the customers that I knew wanted this technology. I said, I need you to prepay for us to develop this project. And I literally collected hundreds of thousands of dollars from customers who were, they were so bought into Next and this strategy that were like, just tell me where to write the check. CFO put it in an account. Avi went and hired all ex-Next engineers, wasn't on, on Steve's dime, um, all as consultants. They came in and we started developing the project. Never told Steve. And fast forward a few months later and HP is in. We're meeting with HP execs, with Steve, myself, a couple of others. And they're talking about an expanded partnership with Next under one condition. Our software has to run on their servers. 
And Steve's like, well, you know, I don't, you know. So I, I pulled Steve aside and said, by the way, we have it running in the lab. <laughs> and technically, I probably should have been fired, but uh, I got away with that one. And, and we ended up rolling out the project and uh, HP contributed to, to funding it. So I, I was able to take the NRE development cost from the customer, turn it into actual license revenue the day we shipped it. It was yet another successful project. Yeah. Because he gave me an inch. And that's all I needed. All right. So chalk another point up to risk on that one. Um, so, you, so obviously you had a great run and, and earned the respect the hard way uh, with Steve. And then eventually uh, kind of come to the end of your run and feel like you're plateauing at next and are ready to pursue the next opportunity. How did Steve take it when you said you were going to be moving on? Yeah, that, uh, that was tough. And, you know, he was a tough boss, but we were very close, and um, and and I appreciated everything he had done for me. But you know, there does come a time where you want to kind of feel like you've got to spread your own wings and and go try your own thing. And and it was time for me. Uh, so you know, resigning to Steve is he takes it personal, and it, I wish he didn't, but he did, and. His initial reaction was he was pretty upset with me and didn't really want to talk to me. Uh, and I was fortunate enough that uh, my last day there, and we, we hadn't talked, and I knew he was upset because everybody was telling me. My last day there, he, he finally came down, walked down to my office, walked in, and he said, Rick, I know you just, you've lost your way. And you got to go out there and find it. And when you find your way, you'll be welcomed back. <laughs> and uh, I got a chuckle out of that. And I thought, all right, well, I appreciate that. And uh, but I am going to go out there and search for my way. <laughs> that's uh, that's a great story and, and great insight, too, into Steve and just the uh, the level of emotion and passion. That, that he brings to everything that he does. So, so fortunately, uh, you landed on your feet and you landed on your feet in a big way. You've had the opportunity to serve as CMO at, at five different companies. And, and probably you're the guy that companies bring in when they want to turn things around. I'd, I'd love to hear about your playbook. When you land, what are kind of the things that you do in order to get marketing not only back up and running but really uh being a key driver in the company yeah great question and 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 every company is somewhat unique um but what i have always found interesting is when i go through the interview process i don't think i've ever interviewed with a company that didn't say well you know what our problem is it's marketing <laughs> that if you can fix marketing all things will be great I've learned over time to, especially when I'm talking to the CEO, just tell them that, by the way, as we start to transform marketing, I guarantee you we're going to find problems in other areas of the business. So let's just be prepared for that. But given that, you know, there's a few things that I kind of do standard. First is, you know, I want to make sure all marketing starts with the right positioning. If the messaging and positioning is off, there's no good marketing that can happen. 
So really kind of the first step is really understand the, you know, what is it that we deliver? And more importantly, what is the value we deliver from the customer perspective? And, and a lot of my, my process is to talk to customers and see, you know, this is what the company says. What do you think? You know, tell me what, in your words, what's the value you're getting? Why did you choose this company's products? You know, are you happy with that choice? So really starting to map out the value proposition and then, and then kind of look at how are we articulating it and are we doing a clear, succinct job of articulating that value? I have one big pet peeve um, in running marketing organizations is I believe in what I refer to as straight talk messaging. Um, don't talk to me like a data sheet with a bunch of buzzwords and long sentences that don't actually say anything. Um, tell me straightforward. What does it do? Why is that important? What does it mean to me as a customer? What's the value I should expect? How will I achieve that value? When will I achieve it? Just talk to me. And I believe that marketing should embrace that across all vehicles and channels. Um, so that's the first thing is really get that messaging and positioning foundation. The second thing is getting marketing working together. Uh, it's amazing to me that in most organizations I've joined, marketing is very siloed. Different groups, um, oftentimes, I, I, when I first joined VMware, this was a very successful company. I mean, this was a company that was just about to achieve $2 billion in revenues when I joined. And what was amazing to me was that no marketing departments talked to the other departments. There was no synergy there. So that's kind of the next thing is looking at how are we working together and collaboratively and everything we do should be amplified by other groups in the organization so that the collective impact is huge, right? So you start just break down the silos across marketing and really work on more of an organizational approach to how we do things in marketing. And then the third thing is really clarify who's the customer. Um, I believe marketing needs to be incredibly customer oriented, but who is the customer? The primary customer, customer of marketing is the field and partners, the sellers. And it's another thing that I'm always uh, amazed by is I'll go into a company, sales doesn't make its number, but yet marketing will stand up in that same QBR and talk about how great it's doing and how wonderful you know, the marketing is and, Look at all these metrics. If sales didn't make their number, something's wrong. And there's no way you can claim victory when your customer fails. So that's getting, getting that alignment of we are here to help sales be successful. That doesn't mean that you do everything sales tells you to do. You know, every sales rep is uh, also a pseudo marketer. I think everybody thinks they're, they're a marketer. And in some respects, we, we kind of all are because we're consumers, right? But I, the number of great ideas that I get going on, they're a dime a dozen. Some of them are really good. Um, some of them are things we thought of, but we just we can't afford. A lot of them are not really good ideas. So, But making them our customer, the most important thing, doesn't mean that we do everything they ask us to do. But we at least engage with them and talk to them about what will help them be successful. And um, if somebody comes in with an idea, I never just disregard it. I will respond back with, that's a great idea. We're going to look at it. Or we're kind of doing that. Here's where we're doing it. Or here's why we're not going to do that. 
Um, but they are the customer. And so I think getting, you know, getting the foundation right, getting the org, working better together and realizing its purpose is successful selling. Those three things start to fix a lot of sins. So you're at, at Click now, and uh, it, it's an awesome uh, visualization analytics company. Uh, in many respects, an innovator um, multiple times over. And one of the unique characteristics, it's actually profitable, which is more than can be said for 99% of the other software companies out there. But to get to that point, it was definitely a journey. Can you talk a little bit about the journey that you've been on, the different inflection points since you've been at Click, and ultimately how you were a part of that process to get to profitability? You bet. So when I, I first joined Click, I've been there a little over seven years now. So this is this is actually the longest tenure I've ever had at a company, which says something about the company. Um, but when I first came on board, Click had, had initially uh, published a product or brought to market a product called ClickView, which, which really transformed the business intelligence market. And they completely changed the game on what was then the you know the leaders in the space, business objects, Cognos, Hyperion, et cetera. And ClickView was a, a, a just revolutionary product. But it was developed based on old school BI and a new approach to a very complex way of approaching visual analytics, much better. But what happened was the market had shifted over the last decade to more self-service business user access to to be able to create their own visualizations and and dashboards and applications and what have you. Um, And so Click needed to adapt. So when I first came on board, I was actually brought on board to help launch the second generation product, which is uh, called ClickSense. And that had, you know, all of the same power that the original product had, but a completely different environment, user experience, self-service oriented, et cetera. Um, so it, it was actually pretty disruptive to the customer base though, because it was a, a new product. It was not a new version of the old product. And that meant that we had the challenge of, we had to bring that product into market to be more competitive with where the market was now heading based on new competition in the market. You know. And at the same time, keep our ClickView customer base happy, but get them slowly moving over. And that is an incredible challenge for a company. Um, and so as we started doing that, we, we successfully started building up our ClickSense product line. But I have to be honest, it, it's, it has been a, a struggle to move ClickView customers over. Um, and so during that process, we also realized that uh, while the market really wasn't adopting SaaS in business intelligence, we knew that's where it was heading. And our second generation product was still an on-premise product. And that we knew that wasn't going to sustain us. And so we were going to have to basically re-architect and do yet a third generation of the product to really go where the market was undoubtedly going to head. Uh, and that's tough to do as a public company, especially because in the BI market, you know, as you refer to, and we see is there's just not profitable companies. All these BI companies you hear of, these these big name you know, data visualization companies that you think are being so successful, 
they're not making profits. You know, they're sinking their money into it. Um, and so as a public company, it's hard to go through yet another transformation. So we actually ended up choosing the route to, to be bought out by a, a PE firm and go private while we went through that transformation. And over the next uh, couple, three years, we developed what is now probably the leading enterprise SaaS offering for BI that spans much more capability than any of our competitors. It includes data integration, data analytics. It includes uh, application automation to be able to automate workflows based on triggered insights from real-time information. So we've, we've actually advanced so much in what we deliver that we don't talk about it as business intelligence anymore. We talk about it as active intelligence. It's this notion of continuous intelligence based on real-time, up-to-date information that is actually triggering downstream events. Um, all done in a SaaS, complete end-to-end SaaS cloud platform. So that's the journey we've been on. And we. what's amazing is we've been able to do that with incredible profitability. We are highly profitable as a company, which you know how PE is, that it's profit, profit, profit. Um, and the beauty of that discipline is they really challenge everything you do and how you do it. So our, our PE company is Tomo Bravo. They came in and just challenged us with, you know, oh, we need all these resources. We need all these people. We, you know, we can't change. Like we're trying to do more. And they made us go back and start from scratch and replan. And I think at the time I was running about close to 200 people in the global marketing organization. And I was forced to cut that back to down closer to about 130. It made us completely rethink how we do things. And the amazing thing is, is when we were going through that process, I would have told you, we're just going to have to stop half of what we do. We didn't. We just figured out a better way to do it, a more efficient way to do it. And we actually improved our effectiveness overall um, by, do, by changing the way we did things. And the whole company, every department, every division of Click has, has gone through that process. And we're doing more with a broader product line in the cloud with more focus on customer success than we've ever done. And we're doing it in a highly profitable way. So I think the experience, experience has been just amazing to go through. And, and I've learned so much through this process. I'm just, I feel very fortunate to have um, had the opportunity to go through it. What I love about that story, Rick, is that it really embodies the three tenets of your strategy. Number one, be clear on who the customer is. Number two, get very precise on the value proposition using simple language to showcase a set of capabilities that are going to really resonate with the customer. And number three, get the team working together. Being able to go from 200 to 130 and yet still not sacrifice the productivity of the team is a manifestation of these, these synergies that are there that we may be overlooking. So I think it's just a great formula and a, and a great example of that. Well, Rick, the, the time has flown by and uh, I love the stories. I always end with the same question and I will ask it of you as well. As you look back over a great career and also a great life, if you had to boil it down to one thing, what is that one thing that's made the biggest difference in your life? You know, I would say it's, it's that 
desire to always learn and grow. You know, I started my career in engineering, but I wanted to learn more about what customers do and how customers use products and just learn more about technology and, and its use. So I purposely chose to move into a field organization. Um, from there, it was, you know, I had the opportunity to, to move into marketing. And so it's like, yeah, let me try that. It, that sounds like something I can do, right? We're all pseudo marketers. So, you know, let's learn something new. And throughout my career, I've just been given more and more responsibility. And I've always gladly accepted it um, because it's an opportunity to grow and to learn and try new things. And for me, that's that's what gets me up in the morning. And, and I think that's why I, you know, I've settled in the marketing. It's marketing's really my focus and has been over the last 20 years is because like life, marketing is constantly evolving and changing and throwing curveballs, whether it's market conditions or new com competition or new techniques that are available to marketers, new channels, new buying patterns. It's just that it, for me, it's exciting to always know that you're learning, you're growing, you're evolving. And I think that's what's kind of fueled by my entire career. I go back to that kid on his bike that built a couple of ramps and was trying to figure out if he could actually clear one ramp and landed on the other ramp. And for you, it was more about, man, can I do this? You know, is this possible? As opposed to what's going to happen if I crashed? And I think that ability to take the fear and put it on the sidelines and just go for it, such a great characteristic and is the, the driving force and motivation behind so many great careers. So uh, definitely appreciate the stories, the experiences, and the advice that you've shared today, Rick. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to participate, and I appreciate being able to tell those stories. So thank you, Justin. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams and boxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.